Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to see you all. I'd like to welcome you to our uh, Sunday School this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. So God has finished his work of creation. He has created man, then planted the Garden of Eden, and then placed that man into the garden. And then in verse 16, we have the establishment of the covenant of works. Genesis 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. If that's all the information we had on the covenant of works, uh, we, would, uh, we would think that all that God required of uh, Adam was to not partake of the tree. Uh, but we know from the New Testament, providing invaluable information about all of the uh, communication and covenant transaction between God and Adam, that Adam was born with a moral law written upon his heart, and that this single positive law was added to that moral law. And the obedience that Adam was required to give uh, was perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to this law and the positive command. Uh, and we know the story uh, that he sinned and violated not only that positive law, but in fact broke every single one of the moral laws at the same time. That covenant of works then being violated, Adam lost access to the tree of life and was kicked out of the garden. And then Genesis 3.15, we have the first revelation of the gospel. And from that point, the covenant of works still bound all men at all times to, again, that same personal, perfect, perpetual, exact obedience. And that all men from the time of Adam to Abraham were bound up under that because where there is no law, there is no sin. Genesis 5 makes that clear. And then the covenant with Abraham, we've talked about that, where in that covenant, God required Abraham and his descendants to walk before him for the face of God and to be blameless, perfect. And that that covenant, among the other things that it promised, republished that same covenant of works, binding Abraham and his descendants forever to that same perfect obedience to the moral law of God. And then the Mosaic covenant comes along and more clearly republishes that covenant of works in written form on those two tablets of stone. And then that moral law bound them again, to that personal obedience in perfection. And we made the distinction uh, in past weeks that those under the Abrahamic and the Mosaic Covenant were, yes, under that covenant of works, but there were those who were outside of it who were still bound to the covenant of works. Then we have the Davidic Covenant that comes in that, again, reemphasizes the importance of keeping the moral law of God republishing it again, promising that a descendant of David would be upon that throne forever if they walked in obedience to what God had commanded them. But we know the story that they divided into two kingdoms, a northern and a southern, and then 
pursued a lack of faithfulness, a lack of obedience, uh, where they became just like the nations around them. And the curses of the covenants that God made with Abraham and his descendants warned them that if they did not keep the commands of God, he would cut them off from the land and cut them off from being his people. Ten of the tribes were cut off permanently and never came back from the exile. Two did, not all of those two did. And yet God, through those Old Testament covenants, was pleased to reveal his covenant of grace and to reveal it, beginning at Genesis 3.15 and in the words of the 1689, by farther steps, using the Old Testament covenants and the laws as types and shadows, more broadly expanding uh, the gospel and the understanding of it, using those types and shadows to preach the gospel to them, until the full discovery thereof in the incarnation of Christ, when the one covenant of grace, the new covenant, was ratified in his blood, that covenant being established then, revealed prior, and then the blood of Christ shed in establishing the perfect righteousness of Christ, his law-keeping as being available for people to take of by faith so that they could stand right before God. And that, that covenant of works, even after Christ, is binding upon all men at all times, and that truly one is either in the covenant of works and shall live or die by that law, or they are in Christ and his perfect obedience to the covenant of works for righteousness. So we've talked about those things, and I repeat those things uh, by just kind of virtue of a summary, remind ourselves of what we've talked about. Beginning this week, we are going to begin looking at, in my opinion, some of the most important material of the entire class. We are going to be making distinctions within our definition of a covenant. Remember we talked about uh, our definition of a covenant And that these eight parts of the definition are important. The covenant is an agreement between two parties. It features a legal contract. It has conditions, promised blessings, threatened curses. The covenant is established by an oath. And that all covenants are a means of God's gracious condescension to man, providing them uh, not only with access to uh, salvation, preaching the gospel to them, but a means by which man could better their state. Jason? Yes? And all of these covenants, the, the object of the covenant, the receiving party covenant, or Adam, or David, or Moses, they agreed to that? So one of the things about divine covenants is that, yes, there are two parties, um, but they're not equal. Um, and it's not like a business contract where uh, both parties agree to be uh, in covenant with each other. Uh, we see in Scripture God saying, and I will make my covenant with whoever it is. And the idea is that God in his power and his sovereignty come to man and says, this is what I'm doing in, in creating this relationship with you. And he, basically man is a passive party, brought into that covenant. Um, God changes the desires of the heart uh, to want to be in that covenant. Uh, some of the covenants, like the Abrahamic covenant, required uh, circumcision and obedience in that to enter into the covenant. 
but the covenant was not established with man saying, I want to be in it. I want to agree to this. God says, this is my relationship with you. Walk therein. Um, and it, it's, that I can see. I, yeah. I, I see them as God's sovereign dealings with man mm-hmm. without the distinction. I mean, it's not that he is saying, okay, I'll do my part if you do your part. Right. And I guess, you know, that's why originally I was wanting to see the difference between a, a covenant and a contract. Yes. Because the contract in fact is two people yes. agreeing to the, the conditions yes. of that document. But man, he is not agreeing to that. He is he's mm-hmm. falling when he comes. By the time he gets to Moses, he's too dead. Yes. So it, it is God sovereignly deciding to deal with man in that covenant. Yes. Without his agreement, because he's living, he wants to keep living as far as man is concerned, he can take that. But God knows what he's doing. And because I look at these covenants, and correct me if I'm wrong, is these were just information, God's information dealings with man in history. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus Christ. Yes. There's nothing they could have done in those covenants that would have saved them. There's no commandments keeping all of them if that were possible. It would have not have saved them. Yeah. It's about Jesus Christ. So yes. they all point to him. Yes. And that's the right way to look at the covenants of okay. scripture. Um, everything is pointing to, foreshadowing, typifying Christ. And that's what the Jews got wrong. They thought salvation was in the covenant itself. And yet all of these Old Testament covenants are pointing to, they're like billboards saying, Christ, look through these types and shadows to him. Mike. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. Um, whether they had agreed to it or not, they would have still been in covenant with God under those conditions. Um, but yet they agreed to it, and we know what happened. Um, majority of them were uh, people who um, did not love what God loved, um, found the commandments of God to be burdensome, and uh, that generation ended up perishing in the wilderness because of that. Um, which is an example of the fact that God means what he says. He's serious about the conditions, the promises, and the threatened curses that he gives. So, real quick, sorry, just another distinction between trying to beat the party is just, it, it's almost more like a, a will, where I can say, I need my assets to you if mm-hmm. you meet these conditions, if you don't do drugs, if you have a full-time job, Mm-hmm. I'm free to do those, and my yep. kids are helpless because they're not their assets. Mm-hmm. They're not their gifts to demand, and yep. so they can't negotiate the terms. Right, exactly. They're bound they, to that. If they want the blessing, they have to follow the conditions. Yeah. Um, and then it makes because that's way it's more of like a I'm trying to give you this stuff. You just got to do it. Yes. Um, then it is a well. I have. Equal. I'm on an equal playing field with God. Yeah. Let me negotiate, and I, I don't like that one. I'm going mm-hmm. See if I can find a couple quotes for you. Which 
when you were first saying that, the, the Arminian in me, not now, the pacified Arminian in me was like, wait a minute, that's not really fair. That God can just come in and say, you must, you know, obey the, the law perfectly. But if you look at it from, well, they're already going to hell. They are already deserving the wrath of God. And now he's provided them not commands of what you have to do, it's here's a way out. And then it's what a gracious God, not a what a mean God that's putting these requirements on us. So a couple of quotes um, here in discussion about the parties. Um, Jenren and Velma, a covenant is by no means a uh, always involving equal parties. When God ratifies a covenant with people, the two parties are indeed very unequal. He never says, let us make a covenant, but I will establish my covenant between me and thee. In his covenant, in its formation, uh, it's unilateral, coming from one side. And then Burkhoff, God and man do not appear as equals in any of these covenants. All God's covenants are of the nature of sovereign dispositions imposed on man. God is an absolute sovereign in his dealings with man and has the perfect right to lay down the conditions which the latter must meet in order to enjoy his favor. Uh, puts it in words that uh, are clearer than I could say. Especially uh, once you get past the fall. Anything that we could have uh, added or negotiated with God over would have been something that would have been uh, not a display of who God is. Because that's what these covenants are designed to do. They're a display of the righteousness, the holiness of God. Uh, and we could add nothing to it that would in any way um, display that any better than um, it is. So our goal today is to begin working through some of these really important distinctions. Some of them, um, you may, in them being presented, wonder why I'm making these distinctions. Uh, I assure you they're very important and they will be very helpful as we uh, begin looking more deeply at individual covenants of scripture. Because what we're going to do is we're going to take our definition, those different parts, and then expand upon that definition by making distinctions in those parts. And then when we come to an individual covenant, we're going to ask this series of questions about that covenant and answer them. And these distinctions that we're going to make will help us to understand what we are seeing in this covenant and what we're not seeing. Some of the confusions uh, that other people make is because they're not recognizing the importance of these distinctions. So the first distinction I want to look at is the type of situation, that there are two different types of situations in the covenants. There's an external and an internal situation. The word situation is focused upon um, what is necessary and required in the covenant itself. So an external covenant is one that's focused on outward obedience, outward temporal reward. It's not necessarily connected to anything internal. When we look at the uh, Adamic covenant, there wasn't anything really internal required of Adam per se. Uh, he needed external obedience as well as internal, but primarily the conditions of that, that covenant were focused on his outward obedience, right? 
And we see that again in the Abrahamic covenant, outward obedience. And that the spiritual things that that covenant was promising are all found in the new covenant. The Mosaic covenant, the same thing. In the Davidic, it's all outward obedience. Pointing towards the covenant, the only covenant that has internal realities, and that is the, the new covenant. The condition of the new covenant is faith. Faith is not an outward thing. Faith is not an external thing. Faith is something that man is not able to conjure up in himself. It's not something he's able to do. It's a gift of God. And that's why uh, it's important to recognize this distinction um, that the Old Testament covenant, covenants primarily were, were focused on external obedience. There were some internal things with it, but primarily external things. But the New Covenant is focused on internal realities. That regeneration is necessary. It's an inward thing. Again, something that man can't control, can't manufacture. We see that in John chapter 3, in Jesus' conversations with Nicodemus. And then I talked about faith. Faith is a gift of God. It's internal. It's something that happens in the heart. It's a belief. It's a changing of affection. And that really, this is getting at the idea of spiritual things. Spiritual things in our world uh, today are confused and almost obliterated. Biblically speaking, the only things that qualify as spiritual are those things connected to the Holy Spirit. Uh, anything that's not connected to the Holy Spirit and that's called spiritual, uh, those things are actually demonic things. Connected to the forces of darkness. Man is spiritually dead because of the fall. And he needs an internal uh, divine miracle to bring him to life. Uh, faith needs to be given to him to believe upon Christ for salvation. And then everything that happens uh, from the point of conversion is focused on the image of God being remade, the heart being more and more purified, more conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, there is external obedience, but it is the outflowing of what happens in the heart, God's work in the heart. Now, I don't want us to understand external and internal in an exclusive sense, because there, there is uh, a little bit of overlap between them, but primarily, generally, the Old Testament covenants are focused on external things. You see it in the Mosaic Covenant. You had to keep the law, all of the ceremonial laws, which are entirely external, the judicial laws that are entirely external, and yet the moral law was pointing towards something distant, far off, that Christ would accomplish a righteousness that would be available for men to partake of by faith in Christ, a righteousness that is not about us doing it's about us receiving, right, in the gospel. So this is the first important distinction. This one may not be quite as clear because there is a little bit of overlap, but it's really important to understand, generally speaking, the difference between the Old Testament covenants and the one covenant of grace. Now we're going to move into, uh, in my opinion, one of the most important distinctions. The two different types of conditions in the covenants. All covenants have conditions. Uh, we read this morning the account in Genesis 2 of the covenant of works. The condition was to keep that single positive law. The New Testament sheds light uh, upon this covenant, helping us to understand that it was also the moral law that was written upon his heart that he was bound uh, to keep. The two different types of conditions in the covenants of Scripture are merit-based and gracious. 
Merit-based conditions, again, are based upon man's obedience. Man is required to keep these conditions of covenants with that same perfect, perpetual, and exact obedience. He receives no divine aid from God in keeping these conditions. It's all upon his shoulders. Adam received no help in the Garden of Eden, right? It was all upon him. He either obeyed or he didn't obey. You see it in uh, the republishing of the covenant of works under Abraham and particularly Moses, that the people were not given any divine aid in keeping the conditions of this covenant. It all depended upon them. They had to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. It was all upon man's shoulders. And these are merit-based conditions. Gracious condition is one that is not based upon man's obedience, but upon God bestowing the ability to perform the condition required. This condition is not works-based. It's not requiring that individual to do anything. It's something that's free and gracious. And this gracious condition is found only in the one new covenant of, of grace. That, that covenant is conditional and that one enters into it by faith. But it's not a faith that one manufactures. It's the gift of God. That God in that covenant of grace, in the new covenant, qualifies those who participate by regenerating them and giving them faith. And that's one of the major distinctions between the Old Testament covenants and the New Covenant. Man is required to keep the conditions. But in the New Covenant, Jesus kept them all for us. And if we believe upon him for salvation, his perfect condition keeping is graciously given to us. This is one of the stark contrasts between these systems. And as we look through the individual covenants in more detail in future, we're going to see this highlighted, uh, I think, very clearly in light of the, the glorious things that are in the new covenant. It, it no longer depends upon my performance. One has already performed everything necessary. We just have to believe in him. Yes, Amy. It's a good question. Um, I think in and of itself, God giving the law a reflection of who he is and of his character and his attributes is a gracious thing. Um, but not everything gracious is gracious in the sense of saving. You know, there's a difference between God's common grace and his saving grace. And so the giving of the law was really focused upon him in a way that was common to all men, revealing himself. Uh, and obviously because of the fall, man can't keep it. But that doesn't change the reality that man is bound to keep this. Um, and that was one of the great errors of uh, the Arminians. Uh, they rejected the covenant of works model as continuing on after the fall. And that error was perpetuated uh, by many different people and has found its way today into um, some areas of the Reformed Baptist community, um, creating new ways of understanding the covenants of scripture, either rejecting the covenant of works outright or 
only accepting it up to, but not after the fall. Um, and the idea is that God cannot require man to keep that which he's not able to keep, uh, which um, we'll get to that argument um, in the future, but it comes down to um, just because we can't keep it doesn't change who God is. It does not change his uh, requirement of us. Um, like, kind of goes to what we, we talked about last week. started of, in the Old Testament, yeah, they were still under these merit-based conditional covenants, but yet they're still saved ultimately through Christ mm-hmm. and the covenant of grace being yes. kind of retroactively applied to them. Yes. So does that, I think that maybe is what you're asking, right? So the New Testament teaches that the law was given as a tutor toward Christ, that the law was given and continued perpetually to show all men, whether they were under the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants or whether they were outside of it, that they could not keep it. Therefore, they had to look for another alternative. Uh, and the reason why the Jews had spiritual privilege above, uh, among all the other peoples and nations of the earth was that the gospel was more clearly preached to them through the types and shadows of the Old Testament covenants. And God's purpose and focus in all of this was in revealing the gospel, pointing the people toward how they could be right before God. Uh, I've shared uh, in past weeks about when God made the covenant with Abraham, God promised Abraham um, a physical descendant and a physical piece of land uh, in Genesis 17. And right after God promises him those things, uh, it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, obviously, Abraham's uh, faith and the object of it was not those temporal promises. He was looking through them. Hebrews tells us that Abraham looked to the far-off country, knowing that that physical piece of land promise was a small type and shadow of something far greater. How in the one who was to come, the people of God would inherit the whole earth. So he was looking through these types and shadows, looking to things greater, and that uh, physical descendant promise, he looked through that and saw that it wasn't just his own son, but it was the one promised to Adam and Eve who would come and crush the head of the serpent and would uh, do all that Adam failed to do. Um, So even though the law is heavy and weighing, it was there to drive men to utter helplessness. They couldn't do it. They couldn't keep it. And that was what God designed but then through that to point them through um, a progressively expanding, clear types and shadows display of the gospel. You know, in the garden, God gives that promise in Genesis 3.15, and then we go to the Noahic covenant, and surrounding the events of that, we see a greater display of what's going to happen in the gospel, the ark being a type of Christ, and all who were in him would be saved, and the rest would perish. And then the, the principles of uh, the Noahic covenant established afterwards that God made those promises to man so that the earth would not be destroyed in that same way again, so that the promise made to Adam and Eve of a coming descendant who would accomplish all that Adam failed to do, so that would be accomplished. If man was destroyed, then there was no hope. Uh, and then in, in Abraham, circumcision pointing to the need for regeneration, circumcision of heart, and then all of the uh, commands of God being bound again upon the hearts of Abraham and his descendants. They had to walk before God blamelessly, perfectly. Uh, couldn't do it. Abraham knew he couldn't do it. Um, and yet God 
through the promises, the types and shadows, preach the gospel to him. And with Moses, it explodes into far greater revelation. You have this sacrificial system, a high priest, a temple, all of these things pointing to Christ. And even under the Davidic covenant, the idea of a king um, who would reign forever, a descendant of David, and recognizing that the inability of the descendants of David to be righteous was pointing to something far greater. And who are those who looked through it, saw, and believed? Chris. In every one of those examples, you are seeing the Old Testament covenant, the various covenants established with, with um, Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, with David. You're seeing them. They, they are covenants, but you are seeing within them how they support and uphold, how they teach and point to the covenant of grace by which alone we have salvation. Yes. And so um, the gracious aspect of each one of those, uh, those covenants is, is not that they are, um, it is not that those covenants create a way of salvation in themselves, yes. but you are seeing how they support, uphold, and uh, teach and point to the one covenant by which you can help have salvation, which is the covenant of grace. So when you see the Ten Commandments, it is a part of the covenant of grace that Christ fulfills the law for us. So when we are taught what the law is, and what God demands in the law, we are seeing what it is ultimately that the Messiah, that Jesus, must fulfill for us. Yes. So we are learning in the Ten Commandments, we are learning in the law, what it is that must be fulfilled. Yes. And Christ is the one who fulfills it. Yes. Scripture says that Christ was born under the law so that he might save those under the law. Um, that word law there is speaking of the covenant of works because not all of mankind was under the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants. Christ was born under that covenant of works to keep it perfectly so that some under the covenant of works, the elect, would be saved. Josh. So when I think of the merit-based traditions and the grace-based traditions, I think of them as very interchangeable in my mind, like law and gospel. And law is those who were uh, under the curse of the law and not saved by grace, and then the gracious traditions are those who received the covenant blessing through grace and yes. not their own. So let's say, because I'm reading Romans 11, this may be off topic a little bit, but the idea that there's a, it seems like there's a blending of the two almost, where uh, it says, you know, but if some of the branches are broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say that branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So it seems like it seems like the same conditions of the to the original people are applied to us as the Gentiles in the New Covenant. But I'm not sure. What, what would you say to that? 
So the idea in that imagery of the, the, the vine with the root, yeah. and that the Jews are born in that uh, um, temporal merit-based condition covenant system in the Old Testament, and that their obedience, perfect obedience, is the only thing that would keep them in. They violated it once, they're broken off. Yeah. But you see the starting place of the Gentiles different. They're not in those covenant systems. The root is Christ, and that in Christ, everything that those Old Testament covenants were pointing to was summed up and fulfilled, and that what was revealed in Christ was that those who remained in the covenant in the Old Testament were really participants in the new covenant, and that uh, the people of God have always been, the, the Israel of God has always been, the elect and only reason. The New Testament uh, reveals that clearly. Um, there's a lot more that could be said about that, but you see the distinction between the privilege the Jews had in having the gospel preached to their hearts far more clearly. They had the law in written form, could not be altered or changed as easily. The, the pagan, the Gentile, the Jew, all they had was the law written on their hearts in form of the conscience, which could be overwritten um, they didn't have the gospel clearly preached to them in the types and shadows. Um, but yet, uh, one could have been born outside of the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants and believed and be saved. Um, so salvation wasn't just confined to that. Um, yeah, a lot more could be said about that. But the idea here is that not all conditions are equal in their purpose. And that today, either one is trying to keep the covenant of works perfectly, the law perfectly. Um, the only problem is that they're already born guilty of Adam's sin. You know, they're born and conceived in iniquity. And the, the, the problem is that that covenant of works is an impossible uh, means of uh, gaining what was promised. They couldn't keep it uh, even if they were born without original sin. Um, so all today are under that. The other alternative is the graciousness of the gospel and the, the merit and the righteousness of Christ keeping the covenant of works, performing all that Adam failed to perform, which is why he's the second Adam. Um, so it's either a merit-based condition or a gracious condition. Um, and it's important that we recognize that difference. If it was possible for one to perfectly keep um, the covenant of works like Jesus did, they would win in merit all that that covenant promised. Um, but the problem is, we as human beings, we can't do that. But that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. There are really only two covenants because we never have been able to do that. Right. So the covenant of grace, God dealt with man in different circumstances. He dealt with man on man.
Yes. In order to what? Yes. That, that is the purpose of the Old Testament covenants. Promise is pointing towards the covenant of grace in the new covenant. Um, and in that we see God's, God's graciousness. You know, one nation out of all the nations of the earth had these promises given to them more clearly than any other nation. Um, and yet their stewardship of it, we know what scripture says in, in the New Testament and the Gospels. Yes. In fact, one could say that the covenant of grace is the covenant of works graciously fulfilled yeah. on behalf of the people yeah. uh, that are in Christ. Isn't it accurate when you look at the, the types of conditions? Isn't it real accurate just really to say that this is about which side of the covenant is fulfilling the conditions? That, yes. those, that when you talk about gracious conditions, you're, you're simply talking about the fact that uh, God is the one who is fulfilling the conditions. Mm -hmm rather than man, where the yes. work basis that those are, um, man is to, to fulfill those those conditions. And so either you are under the covenant of works, in which it is up to man to fulfill the conditions, or you are under the covenant of grace, under which God has already fulfilled yes. um, all of the conditions uh, by Christ's perfect righteousness and death and resurrection. So that informs our teaching and preaching of the gospel, does it not? Um, we can't just preach a, a gospel where we're offering Christ. We have to demonstrate to the heart of that individual um, what God requires of them. Perfect obedience, uh, which is why we have to, to, to speak about sin, which is where the law comes in. We have to demonstrate to them that they are a lawbreaker. And God's standard is absolute perfection. There is no doing enough good to outweigh the bad. It doesn't work that way. The bad is still there. Um, and that our gospel has to be focused on exposing their sin, bringing them under conviction of their sin, and the, the recognition that they, they failed. Uh, and that's why I think uh, Romans 3.23 is such a, uh, a beautiful picture uh, of the gospel. You know, for, for all have sinned. That word sin, hamartian, means to miss the mark. It's as if you know, every person is stepping forward and... The covenant of works and the perfection of keeping it is that bullseye, and we take aim, we let it loose, and we miss the mark. We we didn't hit the center of the bullseye. We've we've not lived in perfection. I don't uh, think we have the error. No, well, Paul goes on and says, "You didn't just miss the mark; you fell short. You didn't even make it to the target. That's how far you've miserably failed." And then the the second reality in that is that Christ stepped forward in His incarnation, and the thirty three years that He walked on this earth. He took aim at that target and hit the bullseye dead center. Um, you know, the law is summed up in loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Every single moment of your existence. Um, there has never been a moment where you and I have loved the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, strength perfectly. And yet the Lord Jesus never had a moment where he did not. And so we, we, we don't just have a Savior who's, who's able to perform the obedience. We have a Savior who's able to exhaustively, comprehensively perform uh, far above and beyond um, even what the, the, the law and it, its minimal standards could require. Uh, and that's why we have a great Savior. Um, and that, that's why the new covenant is so much better. That's what Hebrews is all about. Trying to demonstrate to that Jewish audience that all these types and shadows in the Old Testament, they're nothing. 
compared to this one, and that all those things have passed away because of that one. Um, so we've talked about uh, the internal and the external situation of the covenants, uh, whether it's external obedience or whether it's internally focused, speaking of that generally. We've talked about uh, the two types of conditions, merit-based conditions, where it's all of works, or a gracious condition, which is found in the, the new covenant of grace, uh, and it's all uh, given by grace through the obedience of Christ. The last thing I want to look at this morning is the two promised realities in the covenants. This is another really important distinction. Not all promise equal in the covenants of Scripture. That there are two different types of promises. There are temporal promises and spiritual promises. Temporal promises are found in the divine covenants of Scripture in the Old Testament. They're built upon non-spiritual realities. They're blessings entirely focused on physical things. Temporal blessings in these covenants are temporary due to the fact that people die. They don't always get to enjoy the temporal blessings. These temporal blessings in Scripture are generally, if not most often, types and shadows of greater things, pointing to realities found within the new covenant of grace. We're going to explore this in more detail, but some examples, those promises made to Abraham, that physical descendant in the physical land, those are temporal promises. But Abraham looked through them and saw the spiritual realities that were being pointed to through those promises, and that those physical promises of land and a descendant were actually types and shadows of far greater things and that was God's appointed means of preaching the gospel to his heart. And Abraham saw through those physical temporal promises, saw to the anti-type, the thing the type was pointing to, and believed upon that gospel and was saved immediately. So can I ask? Yes. With each covenant that this to Abraham, what you just said sounds like there is both temporal and spiritual aspects of it. <laughs> So I'm wondering yes. if it's almost like prophecy where David writes a psalm and it had an actual meaning to him in that time, but then also is pointing to Christ. And so is it correct to also say that for Abraham, there was a covenant with him that was temporal in nature mm -hmm. for that. And in order to achieve that, there were those works-based conditions to receive the benefit under that mm -hmm. covenant. But then also there's this like level up from that that is the spiritual aspect that is the gracious base pointing to Christ and that's the actual salvific aspect of it rather than just receiving the temporal benefit. So the answer is yes. You hit on okay. the dichotomous nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, we'll talk about that. Um, okay. Basically it's a single covenant with two sides and the temporal side uh, were uh, the, the things that were focused on the temporal promises. And one receiving circumcision entered into that side. Their position in that side of the covenant was temporary. They had to walk in perfect obedience in order to maintain their status there. But the other side of the coin was the spiritual side. And when the new covenant was ratified, what was revealed was that those who had entered into the spiritual side of what the Abrahamic covenant types and shadows were promising were actually in the new covenant. So we'll talk more about that, but you are exactly right. So, that, so that's why when it, we're making these distinctions, it's like, yes, if you look at it from 
our perspective on this side of time, mm -hmm. it's kind of like, well, yeah, they're both both. Yeah. But looking at it from them, they they had a much more mm -hmm. present understanding of the temporal current time. Thing. Yes. And very few of them had that. Yes. The, the futuristic view of yes. You know what the number one distinguishing mark between those who were in one or the other, it's the idea of circumcision. Physical circumcision meant you were participating in the physical, temporal, temporary side of that covenant. But if you were spiritually circumcised of heart, regenerated, then you had entered into um, the promises that were made to Abraham, but the spiritual realities that the types and shadows were pointing to. And that's why now we can say that we are the Israel of God. We are the children of Abraham. That's what the New Testament is getting at there, that we, we are participants in what the spiritual uh, side of that covenant was all about. But primarily, that covenant and the promises that it had were focused on temporal things. And we'll, in uh, next week's class, I will um, mention it now because it's, it's come up. Um, we'll talk about um, a distinction, another distinction in the area of promises, not just temporal and spiritual, but revealed and realized. And that is one of the most important things um, to understand. I feel like if there are two things that I want you to, to, to get from this whole introduction, it's the idea that there's a difference between temporal and spiritual uh, promises and then realized and revealed promises because that sheds light on the whole Old Testament covenant system. If you understand those things, and apply them properly, the covenants of Scripture make sense. Amy. Yes. So in the Davidic covenant, uh, the, the, the nation of Israel was promised that a descendant of David, a physical descendant, would be on the throne if he walked in spiritual obedience. Um, and we know that those kings did not, and that, that that throne was not occupied for hundreds of years, uh, which seemed to uh, reveal the fact that because they'd broken the conditions of that covenant, they had forfeited any of its promises. But really, the promises in there were pointing not to a physical kingdom with a physical ruler on the throne. It was pointing to a spiritual kingdom with a spiritual king upon the throne that one day in the age to come would be a temple. But right now, it's spiritual. And so the idea there is that that temporal promise was a means by which God further revealed the gospel and was pointing to far greater spiritual realities. Because right now, the reality that that Davidic covenant was promising has come to pass. There is one reigning in heaven now, reigning over the hearts of his people. It's a spiritual kingdom. The Jews completely misunderstood the Davidic covenant. They thought it was going to be a physical messianic ruler who would come in, remove the rule of the Romans, and give them freedom and uh, self-rule and autonomy. But yet, Jesus didn't come to do that because that would still be a type. But he came to be the reality of what those types were pointing to. Uh, so that's an example. Um, Alan. Deuteronomy 28, which I, I have read for as long as I was a young Christian, many people claiming those promises. Uh, those those were the another mm -hmm. example of the, the temp temporal mm -hmm. 
physical context yes. that, that God is trying to repeat mm. uh, uh, in that country. So if, if you read the coming many years, it will tell you you must let your leaves, let this coming mm-hmm. in, going out, in battle, stuff like that. All of that yes. is rooted in that temple. Yes. If you could sum up the blessings that were pronounced there at Mount Gerizim. I mentioned that after the Mosaic Covenant was ratified and established at Mount Gerizim and Mount Abal, the Israelites divided, went onto those two mountains and shouted back and forth the blessings and the curses of keeping the covenant. Um, most of the blessings there are temporal in nature, that they would enjoy prosperity. They would remain in the land. They would continue to be the people of God if they walked in um, perfection. And yet all of those things are pointing to greater spiritual realities uh, that it, it's, it's not really uh, temporal, physical prosperity. It's pointing to spiritual prosperity. Uh, and I think more than anything, um, the pro- all the promises that are made there um, may not necessarily be an equal equivalency to uh, things in the New Covenant because, again, the Mosaic Covenant was only made with the descendants of Israel. But they're spiritual things that those types and shadows are pointing to, Chris. The temporal demands that pointed to temporal rewards, Mm -hmm. were those simply failed and canceled, or did Christ fulfill them and receive the promises? My belief is that Christ was born underneath that system, and in performing all that he performed, uh, he, fu- he fulfilled um, all that was required in order to gain these things. But primarily, all of these things were temporary in nature, pointing to Christ. And when Christ comes, keeps and fulfills, they pass away. But, uh, they, came, but, but they, 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 they pass away in a meaningful sense for us. Yes. But the descendant of David, the physical descendant of David, who would reign forever, is Jesus Christ in the flesh. Yeah. So the promise, the temporal promise of a of a, a physical descendant of David to mm-hmm. reign forever is Jesus in the flesh. Yes. And the temporal, um, the, the, so the temporal demands which are the physical demands in the physical realm are fulfilled in Christ, correct? Yes. And the temporal promise of of a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham to uh, reign forever and have a physical kingdom forever is Christ fulfilled that, correct? Yes. This is the reason why Christ was circumcised, correct? And he fulfilled and purchased once for all those temporal promises. He satisfied the temporal demands, didn't he? Which which is why he was born under the law, which is why he had to be circumcised, which is why he fulfilled it. Yes. So they pass away for us so that we no longer, and and this to me is one reason why circumcision is is, is done and why we baptize believers and we don't see baptism as a continuation of, of circumcision, why it's new. Because the circumcision requirement, the national requirement, is done because Christ fulfilled it. And the physical kingdom that we are looking to, he did purchase it. He purchased it. So we're no longer purchasing.
sin yet. Yes. We are no longer under the those um, temporal situational demands because Christ actually fulfilled them. They weren't simply failed and canceled. They were um, successfully satisfied and completed yes. in Christ. Yes. It's as if Christ swallowed down all of the blessings and rewards in his perfect keeping of them and in him taking upon himself all of that, our need, as you were saying, to purchase it, um, it is no longer necessary. It's null and void because... So I, I regard infant baptism as a going back. Mm -hmm. Yes. A, a going back to the time when the people of Israel were still uh, looking to fulfill those... Um, national demands, those kingdom demands, whereas I see Christ as having purchased the kingdom once for, uh, once for all. We are no longer building that nation because Christ has already purchased yes. the nation. Yes, and has now established it according to what God ordained. Uh, I do think that um, one of the points you made is, is really significant, that infant baptism is of what was present under the old covenant but but it is a giant step back and if you're following it to its logical conclusion it's believing that the work of christ is not sufficient in order to completely fulfill and then remove those uh, requirements and blessings um, from uh, what is expected of us um, and I think that the beautiful thing of that is that, you know, you and I, not being Jews, we were never under those covenant obligations. But we've been, as Josh read in Romans 11, we have been grafted in to the one who kept it perfectly and all of the promises and blessings that Christ earned and merited through his obedience have now come unto us in the form of what they were actually pointing to, the spiritual, greater, eternal realities. Uh, and there's so much more that I could say about that. Uh, but thank you so much for your comments, Chris. That was really helpful. So, I have one more yes, Josh. Um, I just wanted to point out that in, in Hebrews 11, when they're going through by faith, it's every time it is by faith, they're receiving not a temporary thing, but an unseen thing. Yes. Spiritual yes. And so Hebrews 11, 10 says, for he was looking for the city, which has a foundation whose architect and builder is God. And that's Abraham. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, I think every time we think of these people receiving the real gracious blessings of the covenant, they're the unseen spiritual blessings yes. ratified in Christ who built the yes. covenant and did it. Yes, exactly. Isn't that a glorious thing that those Old Testament saints, they're not having the gospel as clear as we do, and anticipating what Christ would do while we're looking back, but yet they, they believed. They saw. They knew. Um, it's an amazing thing. And what a, what a great privilege we have living in the day that we live, being able to look back upon the history of God's revelation, everything pointing to Christ, Christ coming, satisfying it all, and then... Um, all of those types and shadows are now gone. Um, we have the gospel to us clearly. 
We, we know God more thoroughly because of what Christ did in revealing him um, than, than they did in many ways. So we, we live in a day of, of great spiritual privilege. So next week, uh, I will lead us through the next distinctions. We'll be looking at finishing the, uh, the two different types of promises, temporal and spiritual. I'll kind of review that. We'll look at the two different types of curses, temporal and spiritual, and then we'll get to the uh, distinction between the different types of promises realized and revealed. Uh, and I think that this might actually be the most important material I could teach you, uh, the difference between promises made and then promises fully ratified. Um, so that, that's our goal, and that's where we're going. Uh, we don't have a whole lot more material of introduction left. I think we may be able to get through the rest of that in the next two weeks, and then we will be diving into um, the covenant of works. We'll be looking briefly at the covenant of redemption, understanding just enough of that uh, to see the framework of, of what God's purpose is in and through all of these covenants and the, the new covenant. Uh, but we'll be looking in, in detail at the covenant of works, seeking to help us to, with great depth, understand what's happening there and connecting it to, uh, in a comparison, uh, the other Old Testament covenants and primarily the new covenant, uh, wanting us to really clearly see the relationship that they have, the difference, and, and ultimately uh, for us to really see the, the, the wonder uh, of what the new covenant is uh, and how good it is to live under that covenant, clearly revealed and ratified. 